In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So welcome back. Hi. Hi. To season five. Well, not welcome back to season five. It'd be oh. welcome to season back five. to Rector's Cupboard. To season five. Semicolon season, season five. five. But it is a welcome back. It's fall 2023 mm-hmm. as we record. Indeed. And there's been a lot of welcome backs lately, haven't there? Oh, September. So what have you uh-huh. been welcome back to? School? Yes. You have kids in school. You're going to school. I and am. So I, I got to do like welcome back for both my semester and the start of my kids' school year. So welcome back. Thank you. And Amanda, you've been welcome back to some things I would imagine. You don't have kids in school. Well, anymore. I suddenly find myself working for a myriad of church organizations. And church as, as one does. As one does. I don't know how that do. happened. Yeah. That is that, is that like accident. a coming to faith? Oh, goodness. Oh, no. Is that what they mean? Oh, I don't know how I went straight from okay, corporate so, to church. But anyways. Yeah, but um, God be with you. Is that a frying pan fire situation? And so welcome Let's back. Let's talk about Calvin. Um, because not. church organizations also September. mostly, re- September is the new year. And welcome Well, back. for all intents and purposes, yeah. So yeah. do you generally feel good or bad with the welcome back? I mean, I mean, there's probably a bit of both. Welcome back to school. Routine. Yeah. I, I mean, there are definitely some things that I like about it. I like the fact that, like, the kids have a better routine in the school year than they do in the summer. Okay, so and they do better with that. That's why I like Staples has, it's the most wonderful <laughs> time. I mean, I... <laughs> I feel like I, I perpetually live in a bit of a grass is greener sort of thing with my kids' school because during the school year, it's the can we actually get them to get dressed and eat breakfast and get out of the house and like all of the Can't things. wait for summer. And then summer comes and I'm like, oh. Can't wait for school. Yeah, I know. So Well, welcome back. Yeah. Isn't that just a thing that all parents experience? I, as a non-parent, I, I, think, I, I assume that that's the I way don't it know. Is. <laughs> Maybe? Yeah. So what about to work? Welcome back to work. That generally I mean, is that's a good not, thing. Yeah, it's also I mean, not really a thing. Because people it's work this manufactured. The it's not like I took the summer off. Well, but they're like church programs and all those mm-hmm. kinds of things. They start up. So then there's another question that I've had. It was kind of more toward the end of August, early September. You would have people say, and I asked people as well, "How was your, your summer? summer? Mm-hmm. How was your summer, Todd?" And what's, mine was. Do you know how many emails I've read in the last two weeks that are like, "I trust your summer went well." Yeah, I sent those too. Yeah, yeah see, so we all I. do it. But I do trust the summer went well. I'm not sure that I said I trust. I said, I hope your summer now, went well. Now, as a parent, now I remember when our boys were younger, I felt more of a pressure that like for a while that like the current summer had to be mm, better than the best. last summer. Or, you know, you would feel it if like we didn't go away anywhere this summer mm-hmm. or there's mm-hmm. this pressure for it to be great, mm-hmm. right? And most of the time, it's a little bit less than great, at least. And sometimes it's not great at all. So, some, I mean, I guess it would be, would it be appropriate if someone said, how was your summer? To say, you know, it was really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a social experiment, I think that that could be interesting. Uh, no kidding. It made me think when we were contemplating this before, it, it parallels to Christmas. That intense pressure to feel like this is going to be the best Christmas yet or the best summer yet or... Yeah. Um, and then I, I wonder if people just look back on previous summers as that nostalgia. There's the nostalgia. It's like revisionist yeah. history, right? Like that road trip was amazing. But if you had just come back from it, all you can think of is the kids. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are there was there a lot yet? of that this summer for us. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, in a couple of years, you're probably going to be like, that was a great summer. We had a good time with the kids. I think so. These kinds yeah. of cultural things, like we just, we live in the midst of it. So we don't always think of it. But there, there is the question, like, where does this come from? This tendency, like the pressure you're talking about, like toxic positivity or relentless positivity mm-hmm. that we all uh, listened to or read uh, this chapter in Susan Cain's book. Um, it's called Bittersweet. Mm-hmm. It's about basically the, you know, 
sorrow and longing and and seeing these as valuable rather than things that mm-hmm. you should just be, you know dismiss or hope you'd never have in your life type of thing um so how was your summer can fit into that um and our guest for today for this interview um andrew root talks about this interesting shift so so Cain takes up like how did we get here historically in some ways and chapter five of that book particularly is good for that um but andrew root talks about this in terms of its impact on some organizations including the Mm -hmm. church and the rest he goes way back hundreds of years and says like people had this you'll hear it in the interview but people had this concept of god uh everybody believed in god first of all almost well it was a given yeah you believed in god that's kind of how your perspective but if people had a fear it was fear of being judged fear of being condemned whatever then thankfully there was a shift kind of out of that and away from that so where there's disbelief is allowed socially Mm -hmm. and culturally and the rest but then there's a new standard and that standard has to do with like self yeah and root saying he's not arguing to go back to the past by any means <laughs> but he's saying like the well he's picking up ideas from a guy named elaine ehrenberg who wrote a book called weariness of the self which is great um but they're saying self is a is a more demanding god mm-hmm. because now your summer has to be better than last summer you have to say I'm great. You have to kind of, and it, all these ideas are interesting in Kane's book. She talks about in that shift, like how we got here. One word, actually there's two words, winners and losers, but she spends more attention on the word loser. Mm -hmm. Like even me just saying it right now, we all assume reaction. Yeah. We assume this meaning that is like a loser is, you know, oh, he's such a loser or whatever that kind of this really, but she says, you know, not that long ago, loser meant someone who suffers loss. It didn't carry a super negative social mm-hmm. connotation in terms of like a character flaw. Then it came to mean like well, character it, flaw. Well, and initially, Amanda, you were saying this, like when we were kids in the 90s, it was like a childhood, like it was like a taunt. It it was just... It's, it's like a thing you'd lob out. Yeah. But like super childish uh-huh, you're and a stuff. Loser. It wasn't like an L, you put an L on your forehead. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or think about like Bart Simpson. He used it all the time. Oh, my goodness. But now you have... You have you know, politicians and leaders and stuff who are castigating their opponents by calling them losers. Yes. You, you met, you talked about. I mean, before the we started recording, oh, all I can think of. Well, no, I, I feel like it needs to be said, especially as I was listening to yeah. these chapters that we're talking about, and she said loser. And the minute she said loser, all I could think of was him, 45, Trump, right? Because it just was. John like, McCain is well, a loser for, oh, being for being a POW. Constantly. Like I could hear his voice, and it became this like, like, venomous thing that like proliferated culture so take him jake just him there's a recent example of something very similar it's come out recently because mark milley who was what chairman of the joint chiefs of Mm, staff mm -hmm. i hope i'm getting that right um military position and he's now kind of releasing a lot more of the honest truth about what went on when he was yeah that behind i mean of course there was and there was this one scene i don't remember exactly what it was but there was a some kind of military ceremony or national uh ceremony and Millie had arranged for, like, they were veterans who came to be part of this. And there was one guy who lost both of his legs and had also mm. suffered some brain damage because of fighting and the rest. And, and apparently, and he had quite a prominent place, even in, I think, helping sing something at that ceremony or something. Uh, and then Trump was apparently quite, so this is not just to go like, oh, Trump, isn't he? Which, I, whatever. Well, it's to. easy that to do. But, too easy. but yeah. this is more kind of how this word changes because apparently in the moment itself trump was quite emotionally taken by this display and by this Mm. man and really seemed engaged right when it ended apparently he turned to millie and others after this exchange and said don't ever do that again don't ever have someone like that at something like this again nobody wants to see that in other words that guy's a loser that guy's a loser yeah and I don't I, want and to be associated to just with that. I have push this part of myself away from, I mean, it's an amazing. That's remarkable. Of, I mean, really, it's just denying emotion. Yeah. It's relentless uh, positivity. Relentless I don't positivity. Want to feel, I don't want to feel bad, so don't put somebody in front of me that makes me feel bad. Yeah. So, but yeah, your yeah. summer was good? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, you we traveled. We did. We we decided to take a, a a road trip up to see some family and friends. We went up to Prince George Didn't and then down our through Calgary. Master Ken Bell have an excuse, like because you because you were like 
Well, oh, I mean, Prince yeah. George, like, and he's this like, those aren't typical this vacation isn't like Paris spots. And, you know, Lisbon. No, they and, are not. But for us, like, yeah, our like, there's family up there, and we went and we saw family and some friends in Calgary and stuff like that. So not necessarily the biggest vacation destinations, but we had a really great time. Well, and I mentioned Ken, but it was way more was, driving. Like, I swear, like, I did the actual calculation. Yeah. yeah, I did the calculation for the driving, and it felt. so so much. How many long. hours were you on the road? I don't even know. <laughs> many, many, so many, many, many. But the kids got to see many, beautiful many. things. Yeah, we saw mountains. Lake and Louise. We saw Lake Louise, oh, and that's pretty good. That's it was yeah. gorgeous. We went out to Drumheller and saw the oh, dinosaurs. <laughs> wow. Well, you thank you what? very much. Wait. Welcome back. Oh, go ahead. I'm jealous. I've never been a drumheller, and I've heard the dinosaurs are cool. The dinosaurs are cool. Yeah. But I there. mean, I think that there's something to be said about like how we engage with what could be associated as negative emotions. And we see that in kind of just culture mm-hmm. in general. But I mean, as far as our conversation with Andrew Root, like you see it in how people feel in their relationship with the church. And I, as I was editing the interview, I kept mistitling his book and calling it The Church in Decline, but it's The Church in the Christ. Uh, the church, the church and, and the, the crisis, crisis of, of decline. decline. So apologies, yeah. uh, Dr. Root, for that. <laughs> uh, well, he's great. Know, he's super helpful, has lots to say so around good. these issues. And we do recommend the Susan Cain book as well. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Enjoy. lots of reading for you to catch up on in your new year. Enjoy the interview. <laughs> Happy New it's Year. Best ever. Best ever. <laughs> well, we're pleased today to have here a co-host, Allison Williams, is Hello, here, Todd. and producer... Amanda Mina is there. You got the mic on? I do. Yeah. yeah. And this is, behind. I think, the first episode of season something. Oh, sure. God. We're super formal season about five. that. Yeah. Season five. Yeah. It is season, season five. It is season five. Five years, guys. Wow. Sure. That's this can amazing. be the first episode. So we're really pleased <laughs> to introduce our guest and have a great conversation about the nature, uh, the state of faith and the church, particularly is there something the going Christian on there? evangelical church. Know? Changes in uh, what it means to be part of a church, changes in how we believe. And one of the more helpful guides that we have found in asking some of these questions is Andrew Root. And we're pleased to be joined by Andrew, who goes by Andy. Yes. So that's okay. He's told us that's okay. <laughs> we're not but just I'll being unnecessarily him. Andrew informal. Root is the Carrie Olson Belson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in the United States. He writes and researches in areas of theology, ministry, culture, and younger generations. Among his most recent books, but there's actually a more recent one than this list, but are uh, Churches in the Crisis of Decline, The Congregation in a Secular Age, The End of Youth Ministry, question Question. mark, in 2020, that's so the end is proceeding, The Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need God, Faith Faith Formation, sorry, in a Secular Age, and Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Youth Ministry in the Age of Science. That might be my most favorite title, Andy. Yeah, that's got a <laughs> title. Like a fr- our friend Ross Lockhart, who is a friend of the There's not enough alliteration here. in there for Ross. Yeah, there's no coffee or Cascadia in there. but, uh, <laughs> but And also, though, there's a newer book, right? Andy, uh, correct. Uh, yeah. I'm about to name it. It is When Church Stops Working, A Future for Your Congregation. And oh, I know lots of apt. churches who just would like that title. <laughs> yes, our churches stopped working. There is a future for our congregation and they should read that it's uh, co-written by Blair Bertrand who is from here in Vancouver though now living in Ottawa Um, for our interview uh, with Andy uh, we're looking mostly at churches in the crisis of decline which uh, we've read really well and really really recommend and then Andy was recently in August in Vancouver for the I think it's the first annual cork lectures I believe that so. sounds so. right. I'm looking yeah, at the VST right. students. Yeah. Don't, and it was fan- yeah, they were fantastic. That. I was able to go great. to all of them and Amanda and Allison were able to go to some yeah, of them. Yeah, we came to, to one of them. And then I also recommend um, on the Homebrewed Christianity site um, and podcast, and they do a bunch of other work and lectures. Um, Andy has a lecture in a series on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the lecture is called Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Faith Formation. And uh, I thought it was just absolutely fantastic so if people get a chance to listen to that we'll put links to these various things and yeah so yeah. andy that's that's the intro welcome <laughs> thank so you nice wow. to have you join here. us <laughs> you sound that impressive. was a long that was a long intro i i don't even recognize myself everything like that's like a, a slice oh we've oh, got we like big... we have construction on the other side sorry listeners you're probably going to hear a little bit of oh Ooh. listen to that we've had no construction sound the entire day 
It's just a try. I don't hear anything, to be honest, from my my end. But yeah, so. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. It was really great to hear you speak in in August. And I've read uh, Church in Decline, and there was some parts of it that it's it's very pastoral. I thought it was it was it it was very pastoral because you know there's there's lots of churches, and I know several of them that that yeah are asking some of the questions that that you brought up in your Cork lecture as well as um, in in this book in particular. Um, I'd love to start with some kind of big concepts of faith and culture for for our conversation today and I'd love if you could let us know what what your definition of like what does it mean to believe and is that some sort of static state or has that that kind of concept of belief changed over time yeah 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 well I think it's uh you know, this is, you guys are in Vancouver. And so we're, you know, I don't, I don't know your, I'm sure your listenership is worldwide. Um, <laughs> so, you. you know, we, yes. we, we won't, we won't uh, just land ourselves in Canada too much, but this, this book is uh, fits in with a series. That's really a dialogue with uh, the McGill professor, Charles Taylor's work, mm-hmm. which is really kind of examining how belief itself has, has been reworked and what it really means to even think about belief in a, in a secular age and really in a late modern, late modern context. And, uh, you know, Taylor's really writing, uh, I mean, in some sense, it's the most uh, anti-American. That's not probably the right way to say it, but it's, it's probably the least drawn into the kind of American context. I mean, I think Taylor's really thinking Mm -hmm. about Canada, continental Mm -hmm. Europe, the UK, like those are the phenomenon of the West that he's really naming. But I just saw a ton of it as it related to the states as well and um, the way as we kind of thought about what it meant to pass on faith to a younger generation of people, how much belief became really about, well, it became captured around kind of participation. Uh, It really became captured by sociological realities, really, you know, that when we started to define what faith is. Um, and, you know, not to throw any shade on sociologists. I mean, you know, sociologists are great people and, uh, you know, I love sociologists, but they do need to count things to do their theory construction, you know, and to do their work. And so when the, when you have sociologists or religion who want to uh, tell us about the state of, say, you know, faith in Canada or faith in America or, you know, whatever, they tend to at least go to, to one way to go is to look at participation numbers. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you start to talk to denominational folks um, around Protestantism, that the anxiety really is around kind of participation. Like, how do we get people to participate? So I, I saw a lot of conflating of belief with participation. Now, it is really true that I think to embody and live into the Christian confession, you have to you have to participate in some way. I mean, you have to participate in very broad ways of, uh, you know, having your life taken up and the very narrative of Jesus Christ becomes your own narrative in many ways, you know, that your, your, your story becomes Jesus story. Jesus story becomes your story. There's a huge participatory reality and there's a spiritual participatory reality that what it means to, to be in faith is to be found in Christ. I mean, that's definitely participatory, but it's much more kind of mystical, if you will, if I you know dare say mystical, than it is just this kind of strict participatory reality. And so uh, I think where we're at with the context of belief in the kind of late modern context is it becomes, well, it becomes very fragilized and that we're really aware that there are people who move in and out of belief quite easily, mm-hmm. which is why I think kind of Protestant denominational officials and others become really anxious about locking down participation in people which they think is belief is because it really is a quite a fluid reality and this is just the kind of air we breathe that belief is not embedded in kind of larger cultural milieus that perpetuate that reality of belief you know like um just certain forms of christendom would have done and the way you kind of talk dress and all that stuff would have kind of perpetuated uh structures of, of belief now it it isn't like that so we've seen huge transitions in that reality and it makes belief uh fragile but also um it can get switched up really quickly like we all can uh, encounter kind of a buffet of 
of beliefs, if you will, or spiritualities, maybe even a better way to say it. And we use those spiritualities to cope with our lives, but they all are until further notice. Um, when they're not useful, we kind of move on from them. So, I, I yeah, I guess I would you know really answer your question directly by saying that it, that belief has changed in the fact that it's become fundamentally a doubted reality and that doesn't mean it isn't profound but it just means that it's it's it can be discarded and re-engaged in um at whim in, in many ways one of the things that i really appreciated in your work and in your lectures as well uh, particularly i'm thinking of uh, the cork lectures here in vancouver uh, it resonated with me because as a pastor someone who's worked for in churches for years and you know the I see some uh, tendency in Christian leadership to kind of react against the secular. And so some of this is to, I would think, to nail down that participatory kind of idea that you yeah. know, we can't be secular. We have to be less secular, less secular, less secular. When I heard you talking about the secular and read what you're writing, you're coming from somewhere different. I think some of it has to do with Taylor, knowing the Taylor mm -hmm. work as well. But then, Allison, you brought this quote that also resonated with this. So I thought it was a great place to start. Yeah, as I was as I was reading um, reading Church in Decline, uh, it it just kind of uh, triggered some memories of reading um, Alexander Schmemann's uh, for the Life of the World, where he talks about secularism. Like Good. I I think the secular, I think it has been ill defined within the church. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you do a really, really good job of, of defining it Speaking in, in your it, book. Yeah. Um, but I, I really love that kind of uh, this, this kind of platform that Schmemann lays out. He says like the world has not, or has become secular, not because it has become irreligious or materialistic, superficial, not because it has lost religion as so many Christians still think, but because old explanations do not really explain. And he talks about how Christianity with its message of offering fullness of life has contributed more than anything else to the liberation of man, it's gendered language, it's from the 60s. Humanity. <laughs> yeah, from the fears and pessimism of religion. Secularism in this sense is a phenomenon within the Christian world, a phenomenon impossible without Christianity. And I just, I thought that yeah. kind of how Schmemann talks about secular here and how you talk about it in, in your work is not how I understood the secular growing up and, and is yeah. not how I so think that a so lot yeah. of people use it. So could you give us like a good yeah. definition of what does secular mean? And when you use it, what do you mean by it? Yeah. And, and I don't know if I can give you a good definition because this is like Taylor's, it yeah. takes 770 it's just, pages it, it's a to, to give it. You it's know more what I mean? how do you engage with that concept is kind of the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you, yeah. Well, I think the way what you're getting at is that most people define the secular is in the way Taylor calls it's the secular to reality, which is the secularization theory, like that there is a kind of secular force, maybe moving like a freight train, maybe moving like an iceberg, but there it's just coming upon us. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that fewer and fewer people are going to church. And that's, that's mm -hmm. the issue. And when we say secular, we say that's what's happening. The institutions are becoming weaker because fewer people are engaged emotionally or fewer people are just, are just showing up. And I, I think that when you, I mean, the quote you read there is a deep sense of a kind of political philosophy that's at, at play there, which, you know, brings in the Taylor stuff in that uh, there is a sense where you can only be secular inside the commitments of Christianity. And, and, and in some mm -hmm. sense, I mean, this is just a very strange thing is like Christianity gives to the world this kind of secular dynamic mm -hmm. and now finds itself wringing its hands <laughs> against it. You know, like what have we done here? Um but there is this kind of, of sense that it's only inside this kind of space that you uh, a, a space of really, really, really wanting to believe that you could create a world where belief becomes an option. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about Taylor, Taylor's articulation is he's like, you know, this society we have, this Canadian society, this American society in its own weird way that we have that makes belief a complete option. And that people can go on and believe, and this is, I guess, ultimately what I, I would define the secular as, is the ability to live your life without having to even think about God. Mm -hmm. Like that you can go on weeks, months, and be like, yeah, I'm a pastor of a church, and I haven't thought about God <laughs> in weeks. You know what I mean? Like you could, other than, you know, like doing the functions of writing a mm -hmm. sermon maybe, but I really haven't thought about God. Or, you know, 
committed lay people can say all the time, like we even hear people say, like, I'm going to take a break from God for a while. That's a really unique phenomenon that that could even happen. Mm -hmm. And it really can only happen because this because the ground cleared by Protestantism and, you know, that Protestant Protestantism has this shift where now what really mattered is that we all believed and we all believed as priests and our social lives were in some sense, like belief was taken internal as a private reality, but then we were all supposed to really, really believe and really, really be committed. And that allows the possibility that that whole thing could flip. And now you could get mm -hmm. to a place where people are like, eh, I know I'm supposed to, you know, like my reformed legacies of the Puritan reformed legacies of North America. I'm supposed to think about God all the time, but I don't think about God at all. You know, so Taylor has this really haunting comment where he says it's only as the kind of children of a society where belief was everything, where belief could become a complete option. So it is this sense of the way certain forms of Christianity, and I think particularly Protestant Christianity, clears the space for belief to be an option. Um, and yeah. it'd be completely optional. And and that is pretty interesting. And there's no way out of that. Like we all, mm -hmm. we all are secular that way. Um, we all, yeah. whether a pastor or a lay person, whether someone who's never been to a church or someone who goes to church all the time, we live with this deep sense that we don't have to, we don't live under the burden of having to believe in God or organize our lives around God, that we could take a break from God. And it becomes harder and harder for us to imagine how each minute of every day or each action we take has divine consequence. Mm. And I, and I think that becomes, to me, that becomes the real issue that, that say ministers and pastors really face is that you are doing ministry with people who have a hard time, not because they want to, but just have a hard time imagining that there is a living, acting God in the world and that their lives have have consequence in the relation to how God sees them and how God responds to them. That becomes harder for people. And it's not because they're evil or lazy. It's simply because this is the current of our imagination. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're all there, whether pastor or not. One of the things that, uh, one of the many things that I resonated with in uh, reading Churches in the Crisis of Decline was how, from what you've just described, how in that book you basically outline, at least as, as I saw it, how if, if churches can take for granted that people believe or that they should believe, right, coming out of this, the, the model that Taylor is kind of addressing 500 years ago or so many years ago, everybody believed. But then as that shifts churches, the model of church defined by the work of the church itself becomes kind of us and them. And the church mm -hmm. becomes, I'm using my word, but a little bit like an enclave. And if we can just kind of drag people from the world into the church. And your, that, your book and your work calls to a much more hopeful view than that. I remember quotes like, the church is the um, narrator of the story, not the star. Or you point out, and I think for some people this would be not, not for us, I don't think, but theologically challenging. But I loved it when you say, when you said, you know, God is about the salvation of the world, not the salvation of the church, right? As it, and so many models are, are that, that the church will be saved from the world. You're pointing to something different and better. Uh, t tell us about how that kind of works in your mind, what, what uh, motivates you there. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. And I think people um, would, would have, you know, different different ecclesiologies to, to push back against that. But, you know, this this book particularly is uh, this weird. I mean, it's a weird book. Let's just be honest. Like there's this kind of running alternative history that's in it. It's a very, you yeah. know, like it's inspired by both. Carl Bart and Quentin Tarantino, like yeah. you know, like that's weird. And as I mean, most are, Tar yes, yeah, yeah. Which with you know, by the Quentin Tarantino, I don't mean there's a bunch of f bombs or anything yeah. in that. In the Lots book. of so I did want gore. I, I did want more, but the editor wouldn't allow me to put <laughs> put a bunch in. But um, but but in the sense of like an alternative history, you know, yeah. like the last I don't know, like six Quentin hmm. Tarantino movies. Yeah. Are these yeah. very strange, like. Um, what if all the, yeah. what if all the Nazi leaders were blown up in a, yeah, French, you know, in a French theater? Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. What part are you watching? It, like, I don't think that happened. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is not, yeah. I mean, I'm not a historian, yeah. but that didn't seem like it, like it went down. Yeah. But I mean, it is, it is kind of, there is something within that genre that, that 
Tarantino's inventing even that's very eschatological that kind of retells this story mm. in a in a different way that has, is the kind of reworking of history so I tried to play that out with a congregation yeah. that that I you know I basically met this congregation by not meeting it in a in a pub that uh, was an old church that had become like a microbrewery you know so to think like okay one of our I think deceptive ways of defining the secular is to say the secular has really overtaken America when churches yeah. become breweries you know what I mean like that's one of the <laughs> I'm like, core, core narratives you know um, and so there is a kind of question like what would have kept this church al- alive and Usually what we think would have kept this church alive is like money and more yeah. people that that yeah. would have kept you it speak alive. about resources, budgets, all these things. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, that you're and you can see how that perpetuates a certain kind of pastoral practice too. like you become the pastor as the entrepreneur that can procure these resources that can keep it alive. But, I, you know, then I try to put it in a conversation with with the, the theology of Karl Barth. And, uh, mm. you know, so I do my. uh my Hamilton version of Karl Barth, you know what I mean? Like um, it's not a musical, but it has this kind of sense that, you know, maybe we can make Bart live again. I wish you would. No one's called me um, to make it into a musical. But no, I'm, not yet. Uh, I, I, the offer is just going to roll in. Andy. I think you might be waiting. A bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can <laughs> just see it on, on Broadway right now. The Karl Barth musical. Um, but Bart has this ecclesiology where he really does want to remind us that God's ministry is to save the world mm-hmm. and that the church and I think this is a faithful kind of ecclesiology across the East and the West that the church always has to be a servant. It's a servant to um, God's work to bring salvation to the world. And that means to me that the church can never really be the star of its own story. And yet that's almost how every consultant and, you know, I am not trying to start fights with consultants here, but almost every consultant engages the church by saying, you got to find your story. This is a very competitive religious marketplace. And if your church doesn't know its story, then mm-hmm. it will have no way of competing in this in this competitive marketplace. And that may be true at a just base, you know, consumer battle level. But I just don't think oh. that that's a mobilizing theological perspective and that the only story the church has is the story of God's ministry in the world. And mm-hmm. uh, to me, that that seems to be the struggle is how do you, you can get people, I think um, within churches, very mobilized by thinking like we have to find our story and we have to fight or else we're yeah. all going to die. Yep. It's, it's very, it's much more difficult to get people to engage and articulate and be willing to kind of lean into the idea that God is active in the world yeah. and God is taking, God is found in places of death, bringing life out of it. And how do we participate in those? And how do we name those? And how do, how do we be faithful to witness uh, to God's working within those? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing how our leadership, even of our church is we, we have people are like, I'm here to save the church, not mm-hmm. I'm here to help this community faithfully wait on God to lead us Um you know, I don't know. So, so this moment that, that you've kind of touched on in, in your book, like the church being in decline, which I think you, you probably talk to most churches, lots of churches, um, and they would probably be like, yeah, it's not what it used to be. Or like when, when you talk about the church being in decline, I, I found, and this is where I, fe- I feel like, well, I thought it was really pastoral. And in, in when you talk about particularly like the death of a church, in not entirely or exclusively negative terms. Like, and I feel like I, I've known some people recently who have had to, you know, vote to close their church down. And it was the most. It's like devastating. Well, it was, it was devastating. It was, it was unfortunately done in the most anticlimactic way. It was just, we're having a vote because we need to legally have a vote. And then there's nothing. And, and the way that you talk about like, in kind of the landscape that many people in the mainline and some evangelical churches are finding themselves right now, what what kind of hope can you can you offer churches that may be looking at like this thing may need to die? Like what yeah. what does death mean? Because I think that people can't or struggle to conceive of it as anything but negative or entirely negative. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, there's multiple things that play into that. I mean, one, as as leaders, uh, we, we just are kind of taken into the imagination of what it means to be, you know, late 
capitalist agents, you know, in, in this world. And that we feel, I mean, there's, there's, there's a noble sense that we feel responsibility. We should, yeah. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are buildings and these are, you know, communities that people put. Yeah. Generations, you know, right. Yeah. And, and blood, sweat and tears into them. They, people in these buildings themselves that we're thinking of selling or not people like, died in these buildings hopefully not literally yeah. but like we had funeral we had funerals <laughs> yes. in these Their buildings lives live, were lived in the church yeah that's a better way to say it yeah, yeah there, there were real <laughs> there were really lives lived inside you can of steal that <laughs> yeah so you i mean you don't want to be flippant and just be and i feel that too like i feel like in the the heat of trying to kind of negotiate this there's a kind of sense of like people become really flippant like you know who cares about your building and and you know you just got to move forward and you just got to find a creative way and and, and we just need to, to you know to to burn our burn everything and, and go you know you you hear these kind of narratives and i i'm 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 i am skeptical of those um i i do think that they're there obviously are always, whether it's an institution or whether it's a person, there are really bad ways to die and there are really good ways to die, you know, like, um, and there is something at the heart of the Christian confession that really is about preparing people to die. Um, and, you know, I know we have a really hard time with that. That seems like the biggest bummer anyone has ever probably said, but that's only because we have this very weird, deceptive reality that we hold on to that somehow we're not going to die you know especially as kind of middle class upwardly mobile uh people in the west we kind of have this illusion that we don't really need to think about death because we're never going to die mm -hmm. but this is true with our churches too mm -hmm. that um you know that there's a sense where there's no shame in in dying but there are in the kind of shadows of this performative dynamic, yeah. like if you're the leader and this church dies, it's your you fault. Killed it. You <laughs> killed it. You weren't talented enough. You couldn't solve the problem. Your own functions, uh, your failure, you know, that, that yeah. kind of sense. Then there is real shame with that. And I think what ends up happening is the honoring of the generations that go before are lost because you just, like you said, have the vote and everyone kind of disappears. And the tr truth of the matter is you, had died long before you had died. Mm -hmm. And um, that is tragic. And I think across North America, a lot of churches will end up are already dead and somehow there's, they're still trying to, to exist. Yeah. Um, and it just becomes kind of pathetic, you know, and I, and I don't mean that necessarily pejoratively. I just mean it as a kind of spiritual reality, yeah. like, um, there's something really sad about a funeral for a person who died long before they died, like who stopped living. Um, and I think that's been true for a lot of our churches, that they've stopped being living places. And um, and if that's happened, we just need to confess it. And I don't think anyone needs to feel shame about that. But there is a sense that if a church dies on your watch, it's your fault. And I, I want to free us from that. Uh, I want to remind us that the church is always God's responsibility. Well, and and if there's been change in culture, society, the nature of belief, and people are measuring themselves against a time when, like, you know, say before, I think in Canada, church attendance it, peaked in 1971 70, per capita. Yeah, like okay. So measure, measuring themselves against a time when, you know, more people came, it was more automatic, and now they've, they've you know been the leader when it when it kind of went down or something the pressure is is relentless but there's a lot you point to it a larger kind of cultural idea of being death obsessed and death denying at the same time and then you see i i know we see it in in church culture around here people going from church to church a church that is either they feel is dead or dying or you know to some new startup thing that it that largely gathers a bunch of people from all of the other places but doesn't necessarily address the kinds of questions that, that you are asking, this greater mission of narrating the work of God in the world. So I have a question, it's a bit of a catch-all, because it's going to bring in Bart and Bonhoeffer, potentially. Oh, well done. <laughs> but with a, with, by using a couple quotes from your book that are just beautiful, to lose the world 
is to lose a living God. This call not to disengage from the world, but to engage in the world. We, we are human when we are in resonant connection with the world. Jesus meets us not when we escape humanity and possess the world, even in his name. Jesus meets us when we live truly human lives, embracing life and resonant encounters in the world with others. There's no need to escape life because Jesus is fully and completely human. So that I, I mentioned the word resonant in there, and you speak of that concept a lot, the concept of resonance. And then mm-hmm. I can see in, in engaging with your work, where you're drawing some of this from Bart and Bonhoeffer. So I thought just catch all, give you a chance to kind of <laughs> tell us about Bart and Bonhoeffer or, and yeah. or resonance, right? Where, where yeah, are some yeah. of these? Because clearly you've I mean, engaged it's, with it, their it's ideas. It's not more lasers. That's why people, like that's why churches are done. Not more, yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. programming or, you know, not program. It is bigger screens. Bigger screens. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but, you know, clearly you've engaged with their work in a way, their writing and theology in a way that has brought a sense of life to you for the church and for your mm-hmm. faith. So tell mm-hmm. us about that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, this book is definitely a Bart book, but uh, Bonhoeffer is my kind of theological mm. uh, spirit animal, you know. So, like everything, essentially, always, uh, always goes back to Bonhoeffer. Sorry to make you choke. On your it's okay. Water. As I was taking a sip of water, Andy. Now you're, I'm just, just I'm a very visual thinker, what, Andy. So now I'm just yeah. picturing like, well, yeah, some sort of Harry Potter like <laughs> version of. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Well, there, there's something to that actually. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, I'm ha- I'm haunted by the I ghost will try of to Dietrich at all myself. times. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so so both are both are at play. But um, one of the probably first, I don't know, little like uh, little like uh, kind of uh, connections that made me try to write this book is um, there's this German social theorist that I I draw on in the middle of the book quite a bit called Hartmut Rosa, mm-hmm. and uh, he's really trying to think about what it means to avoid this continued acceleration of our lives. Like he thinks one of the, if you were to, he, he wrote his dissertation on Taylor. And if you were to see his work as kind of the next kind of being born out of Taylor's work, he's, he's really interested in how kind of imminence and um, this, this kind of sense of closing the world down uh, happens mm-hmm. because our lives just get so accelerated that we become alienated from, from the world. And so he wants to give us a different form of action, which is not to be about acceleration, but to be about, as you quoted, resonance. And he thinks resonance is a different way of being in the world. It's it's more of a relational encounter way of being in the world, which obviously connects with Bonhoeffer, who really believes Jesus Christ encounters us concretely as, as church community. And that we we come up against the very concreteness of Jesus Christ's life as we as we share in each other's lives as we as we're committed to the world by being committed to the humanity and really the personhood um, of of one another. But one of the things that Rosa says about resonance that he says you know it, it's not just a feeling it's not just a psychological reality it's it's a phenomenological one in the sense that we feel called out by something we do feel something but we also feel called out by something and in the midst of that relationship it's it's transformational as well. But one of the most profound realities he says about this is he says that it's uncontrollable. This hmm. sense of feeling connected again hmm. to the world and having an encounter that it is not controllable. And as soon as you put your hands on it to control it, it disappears from you. Um, that you it, it, it just comes as an event. It, it comes as, as you can create kind of semi-controlled spaces maybe that, you know, you can think like a worship service on Sunday is, is kind of a setting a stage for a resonant encounter with God, but you can't. You can't and this yeah. is, you know, and this is where Bart started to come in as I was reading Rose. Like, oh yeah, like Bart says, you can prepare the sermon faithfully. You can pray and you get into the pulpit and you proclaim the word of God, but you don't get to go to the back of the, the congregation after the service and shake everyone's hand and know for sure that you proclaimed word of God. The word of God is self-authenticating. It does not need you. Um, It pulls you into it. It calls you to it, but it's uncontrollable. And there is a certain kind of connection there. And I feel like when we Mm -hmm. define secular as the negative ways we have, or the common ways we have, it all is about control. I mean, part of the Part of the issue of decline is to try to get control of this crisis and we'll beat decline by getting control. And yet the most profound transformational dynamics we have in our lives, um, the real deeply relational ones are all uncontrollable. I mean, you can make an appointment with a friend to have a conversation, but you can't control what that conversation is like. And if you try to, 
all of a sudden you lose the profundity of it. Um, so there is a, a, a kind of assertion that I want to make here that the kind of pastoral and ecclesial disposition we need is um, one of uncontrollability, of being able to embrace uncontrollability and claiming that God is uncontrollable and the richest gifts we get in our lives are uncontrollable. And that doesn't mean that they're pure chaos, but it does mean we have to have a disposition of being willing to encounter this, this kind of uncontrollability. And, you know, Bart's whole kind of theological breakthrough is to remind us that God is wholly other. Hence, God is not controllable. And the problem with early 20th century, kind of World War II era German liberal thought is that God had become a controllable mascot for German religion, mm -hmm. that God had become part of the kind of cultural apparatus of um, of of German culture building, and therefore God was completely controllable. Um, and God was flattened out then to be just an ethical principle. And essentially, as Bart says so profoundly, when we speak of God, we just speak of ourselves in a, in a, mm -hmm. uh, in a loud in a voice. voice. Um, and, you know, the real move for him to kind of open up this, the, the realities of this imminent frame, as, as, as Taylor mm -hmm. calls it, is to return to an assertion that God is other and God is uncontrollable. And yet God breaks into the world. Yet God is found moving in the world. And that can only be kind of proclaimed in faith and doubt. You know, like, how do we yeah. negotiate that? Because we all have this kind of imminent lens that makes makes us uh if you will not you know to avoid the kind of ableist language but it kind of makes us uh, to use it more metaphorically makes us kind of blind yeah. to these realities and um you know so it, it becomes a task of how do we see again how do we hear again inside of this uh this this buzz of imminence but it it starts with this assertion that God is uncontrollable and God moves mm -hmm. and so I want us to get it, get us back to an ecclesiology that sees pastoral practice and life together as a relational reality that embraces our own uncontrollability and proclaims that God is uncontrollable. Hmm. Such an invitation to, we talked about some of the challenges for church leaders and pastors before, and then your, this great answer here in response uh, points towards, I think, uh, knowing a lot of pastors, obviously, a sense of what motivated them or called them towards such work was often that pastoral sense. And then now you're trying to keep an organization alive or something yeah. that when I think about the pastoral in relation to seeing God at work in the world, I'm going to open up a thing here that we won't have time to fully address, but I, I think it's really worth introducing um, a part of your work from lectures and then some other stuff that, that I've read. Um, the German word you introduced in Vancouver, I think you might have started a Friday night lecture with it. I, I remember it because of a yes. news name. I'm probably saying it wrong. Zeit Kronkite or something like that, like time sickness. And what yeah. I'll just briefly introduce it, that what I got from the outline building on Taylor was this idea that, you know, hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago or whatever, you wouldn't be afraid of the things you're afraid of now. People, everybody believed in God. You're afraid of God's judgment, God's wrath kind of thing. And now that it, the world is secular and Taylor outlines how in 777 pages, um, uh, now that that's the world, you really build that well to building on the work of, I think, Ehrenberg, uh, the French yeah. writer, who kind of outlines that that really oppressive view of God was tough to take. It's tough to live in a world where you, you're in constant fear of being judged by God all the time. Yeah. But I've read the Ehrenberg since, really brilliant stuff too. But then it was replaced by self, yeah. by having to make something of yourself, by never being able to satisfy that. So that answer you just gave, that pastoral answer of resonance that seems open, kind of expansive, ready for that which is uncontrollable but alive is the opposite feeling to me of that constant self-judgment and criticism and even despair uh, mental health challenges related to this at times that people can can uh, pick up so i just found such a pastoral note in your own work for being able to see this in the culture and bring together um, you know, Ehrenberg with the stuff you've been studying on acceleration of culture and the rest. Yeah. So I just, you know, having you here on the mic, um, give us some insight on that because I think that's a real pastoral note and how we might, how might we as people who acknowledge Christian faith or as churches 
be able to connect with with larger society, you think, with some of these things in mind. Yeah, well, it is fascinating that, um, you know, whether you're, whether your church is a, a liturgical one or not, I mean, I think even the most kind of low church has a sense that there is a way of inhabiting time, you know, that we think of Advent and Lent, like these yeah. are ways of being in time. But we, we really are living in, like you said, you know, like we lived in an epoch before where we, we live, you know, to, to quote uh, Jonathan Edwards, we were sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, and that we lived under these heavy burdens of what you should do. Like you should keep God's law. You should go to church even. You should do all of these things. And we freed ourselves from that. And I think that, you know, some of us, thinking, oh my gosh, even to say should, it's like, oh my God, how, how abusive that could be, how yeah. heavy that burden mm-hmm. was. Yeah. That was not an easy thing to live in. And, and it was different. I think, uh, you know, it, it was more acute kind of gender wise too, mm-hmm. you know, that I think, you know, women lived under a really heavy burden of, of shoulds. Um, and guys, you know, at times because of gender roles seem to have more freedom inside that. But we have had a, a we are in a different epoch. We're not in an epoch of living under, these, these dominant frames of should, even, you know, in a, in a certain way, not even under the should of the state, like in a, mm-hmm. a very interesting way, like mm-hmm. the movements of kind of communism and then early kind of civic religion and um, kind of, you know, 1950s America and, and, and they had this kind of sense of you should, you should do your duty and yeah. you should live this way. Yeah. Um, that all has disappeared really since the late 1960s, but, you know, for sure is gone now. And what we live under is the could and the burden of the could. And people feel, you can see how you could feel quite guilty living under the should, but we kind of thought we'd be free from guilt. You know, we would, once you, once you batter, yeah, once you batter the should and the should is no longer there, you deconstruct it, if you will, then there's nothing to feel guilty for. But what's happened as we've moved from a different kind of epoch and an epoch of the self that we feel a lot of guilt, like, especially wealthy westerners um you know kind of middle class upward upwardly mobile middle class people are living under huge burdens of guilt and the guilt just isn't a should they don't feel that but they feel could like what i could have done if i if i just could have exercised if i if i could i i could have started that blog i i could have started that business where you think of all the the pastors, you know, that live under the burden of this if if i only could have come up with the idea if i only could have you know, I could have taken that other job. I could have been the one who started the podcast. I could have been the one who wrote that book, but I failed. I, I failed myself. I failed the expressions of myself. And uh, hmm. yeah, that that is or, the or kind then, of point. Uh, people transfer that to their kids then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, which becomes yeah. really debilitating for yeah. a lot of people, right? Oh, Yeah, like the form of parenting been. is to free your kid from ever living under the guilt of the could. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so then all of a sudden there's all this over scheduling there's all sorts of stuff that that lives inside of that you know so th- in many ways the self becomes the most important thing like the, the the self takes on the form of ultimacy in many ways and um yeah that just i think that becomes burnout just makes all sorts of sense that it happens in that in that reality but what i really worry about with as we try to think about fighting back decline is then we take and we use all these words yeah. like we're going to, we're going to use design theory. We're going to use yeah. innovation. We're going to use all this stuff and don't realize that that is really linked up yeah. with a certain anthropology of the yeah. performative self. Yeah. And it therefore just pushes pastors into this acceleration machine of having to do more and more and more and more and to feel really existentially like they are failures if they don't. And I just don't see a lot of theological credibility. Well, it's not only the ministers then and the pastors that, that are under this burden, but the churches then become modeled and designed in a sense to give people the very things that are debilitating them and killing them to a large degree you know like you're battling with that's why i think i found the pastoral nature of it as i as i read it and listened to it was uh that it connects with what people are actually dealing with and struggling rather than kind of saying you know we have the 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 best most awesome thing here now and adding another could right yeah Um, you you could be part of this big thing that's going to achieve all these things instead of that resonance that 
uncontrollable resonance that is there no matter who you are no matter what yeah. you know what qualifications you have and how the church can kind of narrate that so i think it's something well worth pursuing for those who are are listening um this kind of time sickness that's what is that zeit cronkite is that yeah correct yeah okay. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah i'm no german i'm no german expert okay. but um yeah yeah that's, as far as i understand that's, that's i just remember it because of walter cronkite that's the only way so it's just <laughs> zeit is on everything lest anybody cronkite. think that you're too smart <laughs> no, no 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 nobody thinks that so. check that ego a little but thanks better. so much for that pastoral connection because yeah. I, I i just think as i you know whether it's speaking with people having coffee with people preaching whatever this resonates every time People mm-hmm. do identify with that burden of living under that now impossible judge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you've got me now, now that you've connected um, Zeit Cronkite with Walter Cronkite. Okay. I, just, it's I feel like that's got to be one of our songs of our <laughs> Hamilton-like Bart, oh, yeah. uh, to have Bart, a deep, uh, yeah. Broadway show. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the way, you know, whatever you say. <laughs> Sorry, Allison, you had a question coming up. I I was going to say, I think that it is, um, I mean, when you're talking about the the weight that people are putting on themselves and in in the systems that that you've talked about, particularly where where, like these communities are are dead before they're dead. And Mm -hmm. so you have people who are already have put in excessive amounts of energy, time, money into trying to keep something alive that shouldn't be alive and then they've got the burden placed on them of you could have done better and yeah. well and like they'll there, never there, be that big no, church down the street there's no internal like resources at that point to draw from like if you can't identify yeah. that this like if, if you don't get kind of where where that that kind of tipping point might be you're like i feel for for the people like the staff and the congregations of these churches who go, but I'm already burnt out. How could I possibly yeah. do more? And I mean, I feel like it's both incredibly liberating and intensely a little bit discouraging when you say, but it's not up to you. And I'm like, yes, it is beautiful and, and lovely. And there's probably some churches that are like, so I can't figure my way out of this. And you're like, yeah. Well, that's yeah. one of the things we've talked about it that came to mind yeah. as I was reading your stuff was, because again, I really connect with it. Um, but putting myself in the mindset of like church leadership boards, whatever denominations I do also carry that. So I'm, I'm tracking with you, but then I'm also (laughs) going, okay, the new thing you're talking about doesn't work maybe to build the models that we've come from to (laughs) perpetuate those things. It might not be a multi-staff church or a big denomination or, and that's hard for people to face. I don't Mm -hmm. know what you feel. Do you ever kind of, think about those things that like, oh, if people, oh, I, if people yeah. go with what I'm going with, it's not going to work to build a big church, right? <laughs> like, Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel that existentially in the sense mm. that I'm in a, you know, I'm a professor in a, in a, mm. a denominational seminary, you know what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> what? I'm, I'm, you, need you, students. Have, you don't have yeah. job security with that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You know, like it, there is a, a, a kind of hmm. fear that without resources, without growth, then, you know, like in, in the denomination I serve, it's like we have six seminaries. Do we need six seminaries if we lose a bunch Ooh. more people? You know what I mean? Like that's these, a painful these question. Become, these things become real. So I don't want to hide from that. Like I like my job. I like that I'm not also working right. at Best Buy. Right. And so therefore could not do this podcast today because right. I have to, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work on my scholarship, but I'm also have another job, you know, like I, I, this is another privilege to, to have this kind of life. And I think, um, you know, even a full-time pastor and all in, in let alone multiple multi-staff, that is a real, real privilege. Mm-hmm. And some of these things, some of these things will not be able to exist yeah. outside of that. And, and we should grieve that. And that will be really hard but some of them exist now, and I'm just – the thought that we can keep them alive by just going, 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 yeah. and that we can somehow continue to take on practices that close down the imminent framework, even though we don't want to. So they lead us into a world without transcendence, without right. a living act yeah. of God who breaks into it, and think that we're going to be okay. I, I – <laughs> I just don't think that's possible. So there is a certain, you know, deep theological commitment here for me that goes back, you know, Bonhoeffer to 
the early Bart, like goes back to Luther um, mm. in that the the formation that we go through, the what happens when we encounter the very presence of God or even prepare to be faithful to have that encounter is it is a movement into passivity. It is a movement into receiving something. So most of my kind of practical outworkings i think really disturb some people because they are kind of a movement into passivity yeah. you know they're yeah. they're a movement into learning to pray and hearing each other's stories and 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 creating a word that puts us on watch as we wait it's about doing less and about trying to receive more um from one another in a, in a way of kind of mutuality and also being open to god that all these practices end up becoming you know, even in the book where I push back against innovation, that that's that's out. It's like, you know, that instead of innovators, we need poets who can mm -hmm. kind of help us dwell in in the in the power of these word acts and 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 then we receive the beauty of poetry. And at the end of the day, I think one of the things that Luther taught us and then Luther taught um the early Bart is that the form of faith, the, the framework of faith, the, the the kind of model we have from the human side is the psalmist. So it is in crying out to God in both praise and in lament that this is the form of what it means to be a Christian in the world. This is what it means to be faithful is to take the shape of the psalmist. And um, I don't know. I just wonder if that I. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Some people will ask me, like, what's the economic model? Then? And, <laughs> there <is>. and, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> And there, and, and don't get me wrong. I want there to be, and actually, I, yeah. I want to think about one that could could possibly yeah. exist in this. Yeah. You know, like there, not my there, job. There, <laughs> there should be, and, yeah. And but I don't know until we can get this sense of being people who are waiting for the gift of God that really believe God can act and move and that, that, that God is responsible for the church. I can't tell you how many people tell me like if we don't get our crap together yeah. and yeah. like now yeah. there's not gonna there's not gonna be Protestantism. There's not going to be a church in Canada. There's not going yeah. to be a church in America. Yeah. And you just think, my gosh, like you that's a God. theological yeah. problem, <laughs> right? You know, like what is the church? The church is the body of Jesus Christ. So you're saying that there is no body no of Jesus, Jesus Christ. No. If we right. don't get our act together, God well, himself will cease to exist. It feels that yeah. way. Yeah. And on the, on the other side of it is like, well, of course, um, my seminary may not exist. Our denomination might not exist. Yeah. Your congregation yeah. may not exist. But the church will continue yeah. as it serves the world by proclaiming God's act well, and, in the world. And, um, you know, like, I, I don't know if I told this story during the lectures, but we took our kids on a walk the, to walk the Cuthbert Way and so in, in the south of Scotland into northern England. And you ended at the holy island of Lindisfarne. Um, and... We go into this, it, it, this, the, 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 uh, the monastery that's in, that's in the kind of ruins of the monastery now, but this little now Anglican church has been there since 635 when Aiden put stones, you know, so for North Americans, we're like, what? Like, that just makes no sense since 635. But in the back of this church is this picture that's about, you know, like a foot and a half by three feet. And it has listed every prior bishop or vicar who has been overseeing that little congregation on this fishing island since 635 wow. from Aiden all the way to like Sarah Hillis or something yeah. who became the vicar in 2018 and has been there oh, since. Unreal. But one of the most fat, first of all, you get a sense like the church will survive. Yeah. It doesn't need your great creativity yeah. and your 80 hours a week to survive. Like yeah. it, it doesn't need you to save it. It, it will survive. But the other thing is when you look closely at it, you see, from about 700 to 1,000, there's nobody. There's no prior. There's no bishop. And that's because in around 700, a bunch of Vikings mm -hmm. started coming down the northern coast. And these monks had to grab all the treasures mm -hmm. and escape and wandered for almost 300 years. These are hard times in North American Protestantism. Really, really hard times. And we should embrace each other as hard times. But there's not Viking raiders. No. You know, in, in, in other words, you know, there's no one walking into your church wielding an axe. Um, you know, like my point is the church has had more difficult times than this yes. one. And it has survived. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's kind of rough that 
we don't get to live in the golden era of you know church life, uh, uh, but we do. Kind we of. do have a. Well, you, yeah, I mean, in some ways, we, we get better to live, in many ways, right? Yeah, yeah, and in some ways, we're living after it. In many, you know, the, the 1970s in Canada, the 1950s in America, even the 1990s in America, in yeah. some sense, were were golden periods, and we are we do get to draft off of some of the, that institutional stability. Um, but the church will be okay, yeah. and all you can do is be called to be faithful with what you've got now. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Eddie. I want to yeah. be very aware of, of time you, here. And thank you so much for coming on and giving us both encouragement and I think a proper understanding of whose responsibility this actually is and well, how to be brave enough to have enough faith to actually believe that God does act in the world. Yeah, the world, yeah. And so I just, I'm very grateful for your work and for your time today with us. And from, I'm sure our listeners, um, thank you so, so much. Yeah, thanks. Hope you come back yeah. to Vancouver soon and, uh, you know, we'll connect. <laughs> Look forward to it. Yeah. Love Vancouver. Thanks for having me. And No, thank you very much. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.